Wow. Perfect way to prepare for this morning. Um, thank you, guys. Um, well, just to update you, yeah, we uh, about, I don't know, last Wednesday or so was when I turned up positive for COVID and had about 36 hours of misery and uh, like having the flu, you know, that whole thing. And then it went away and it's slowly gone away. Ginger had it, same time I did. And Mark before us, the rest of the family stayed healthy. This uh, random shots in the dark thing that this COVID does is strange, isn't it? Just who's going to get it and who's not and when you're going to and why. And it's just weird. Um, but let me tell you, you were well represented. We had so many people checking in on us. Um, uh, we had people bringing us food. Uh, we, we could have hosted a whole Wednesday night at one point. Like we had so much food at the house. Um, it, was, it was insane. Uh, <clears throat> so you guys were well represented in the church, loving our family very well and uh, through this process. And I know that that's the case for you as well You're, when you guys are facing this stuff. So um, this is, uh, this is that's, I know this is a weird, <laughs> not the kind of thing you normally say, but if you're going to get sick, this is a great church to be sick in. So um, <laughs> I guess that's what dysfunctional families do. So uh, when it's time to step up. And we've had numerous on the staff quarantine for the last couple of weeks, and so we are kind of back in the swing of things in, the, in, a, in a more normal, in, in back to the normal quarantine way of doing things, if that's allowed to say. So the, um, uh, then we'll be, uh, we've got some great, uh, some exciting news. We, you, like I said a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, you know, we're, we're paddling like crazy under the surface trying to figure out how to recreate um, as much as possible church the way we want to um, the way we believe God has given us the opportunity to before now, and yet we're kind of, the stuff we love to do, it's kind of with one hand tied behind our back at least. And so and we're trying to get back toward normal, just so you will know. And so here's, here's one next big step. So us being here, registering and being here was a big step. Here's our next big step, and it happens next week. Um, so just <clears throat> having this in mind, a couple of things. We, our goal, our belief, and I'm going to spend a whole Sunday and talk about this, is, is how we as individual Christians make it through a culture that becomes less friendly to our faith. Well, one of the most important is going to be living the well-integrated Christian life, a Christian life saturated by Christ. Um, that's the only way to do this, and all other forms of the Christian life, I suspect, will end um, in the next generation or two. That if you've got the half-hearted Christian life, the half-hearted Christ follower will just cease to exist. Um, as is true around most of the world and has been true throughout most of human history, Christian history. And so um, that's just normal. That's the actual, that's more normal than the way we've had it, where you could have such a thing as cultural Christianity. I mean, you never heard of that. Or, or even worse, congregational Christianity. That's just ridiculous. And so uh, we have these weird versions of Christianity we've gotten used to for the last couple hundred of years, um, but they're probably on their way out. And so for us to realize there's some things about that. One is um, that our faith uh, impacts how we give. And so uh, that's why we encourage you here, why as a church we give. We've continued to support dozens of different ministries, many of whom are really struggling during this time. Because we're healthy, we're able to help them and support them as well and come alongside them. And so if, if, if you haven't been taking the opportunity as part of your worship to give to other ministries, to other missionaries, to others, and to the church, 
Get back in that habit. Don't get out of that habit. That's a bad habit. And so you can, if you're online, you can probably go up to the right, and I'm about to be talking about some stuff that whether you see me or not is irre- which is pretty relevant all the time, but they would see me or not, so you can click right now and take care of some of that stuff. That's important. Much more important is the fact that we believe that in order to live a fully integrated Christian life, you need a small group of believers um, that you're meeting with and praying with and gathering with and, and learning together with. And that may not be the same people all the time. Obviously, the core version of that is called the family. That's the core foundation of what it means to live the Christian life is, is within family. And so um, whether you're married or not married, reaching out and being a part of families is, is obviously... And the church has had a great opportunity to do that in new ways for the last few months. And getting amen on that, that's, the, um, that's been totally different. So we are starting back up life groups. Um, and each life group is going to be looking for how they do that and what the format is, and that's going to depend on a lot of factors. But you need to know, we've got life groups coming. So starting on the 13th, Sunday night the 13th, we will start having some life groups. Um, go ahead and start. So, um, for example, on Sunday evenings, we will have a re- regeneration, which is a great you can register there. These are all online. You can register. Um, the small group leaders training, which I highly recommend, especially if you ever want to lead a small group here at South Spring, you need to go through that training. Um, next, um, we've got some Tuesday ones, the young professionals. Um, there's uh, Jeff Hunter's leading some uh, one through men of the word. Next, and we're also doing Wednesday night. So Wednesday night will not be normal starting the way it's been done in the past. Where I'm in here, one, for this for now, we're not doing the meal on Wednesday night. I know, it's a bummer, but there's just no way to pull that off during COVID stuff. So you can, you're welcome to show up here with your food um, and, and picnic or whatever if you want to. You're welcome to do that. But then we will have these different life groups. Again, all of these are on the website. We hope you take the opportunity to come and do these. Be some great ones. Oh, go back. There we go. Um, <clears throat> these will be some great ones. Side note, um, those of you who have sat where I teach for any period of time, once I get sick, I cough for four months. That doesn't mean I'm still, like, I will just, it's just me. So sorry, I don't, I may have smoked too many unfiltered as a child or something. I don't know what causes that, but, but that's a, um, uh, I didn't smoke as a child, guys. That's, uh, don't get any ideas. Um, but the, um, uh, so we want you to be a part of a life group. There are many life groups that are meeting right now online. Um, and so if, you, if you're looking for something like that, call up here, check with staff, whatever. We will, if you want a small group to be gathering with, somehow, however that is, we can find an opportunity for you to do that. Um, part of the one I'm doing down there at the bottom, we have a number of people in our church who are non-believers. Either they're married to a believer or they're coming for some other reason just to come and learn and grow, which I highly recommend. It's great. That's true free thinking, unlike the fake version of free thinking we hear about all the time, but that's the true thing. And so I'm going to be leading a life group on Wednesday night for people who have questions that really, really cause them to struggle in, in their faith or keep them from the faith. And so for us to wrestle through some of those together. But you'll see John Redfern's and the posture of worship. I highly recommend being a part of that. If you've been a Christian for a while especially, this is, this is part of what's going to get us through. So Jeff and Jenny Lay are leading one about the uh, Gospel Comes to the House Key. Great book and uh, vital for the ministry of our church as well. And then um, the battle plan for, plan for purity, Chris Sherrod's going to be leading that again, um, especially that one's for men. So men, I, I tell you, get, get involved in that. If you want to experience, again, the re- well-saturated Christian life, I want to make sure we're part of this. Okay, these are life groups. They're coming up starting in September. So you've got a month to look ahead. Good? Now, next week, 
Next week is our next big step as far as Sunday morning. Next week, we're going to start having two services, 9 o'clock and 10.30. Yes. <laughs> 9 o'clock and 10.30, we're going to have two services. Also, that means um, preschool will be having life groups on next, starting next Sunday morning. Just preschool. Um, so preschool will be having life groups next, starting next Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. Um, first service, they'll be on the first floor of the preschool building. Second service, they'll be on the second floor so that we can have clean, ready rooms. Uh, we will ha- you will have to register for that, limited spaces. Um, so for those of you who are at home right now going, I just have not been able to come in the last few months because I feel like my preschooler would be too disruptive. One, you could have. It would have been fine. Believe me, there's old adults in here who are more disruptive. But the, that's a... Um, but this is an opportunity now. You, we will have education opportunities and, and children's ministry for them, for their, their small life groups. You have to register. Um, temperature checks will be for everyone who's involved, regular and thorough cleaning, all that kind of stuff's going on. Um, and there'll be other opening phases that we're working toward. First, we've got to do this in a way that makes sense. Life groups, again, I mentioned that you'd be looking for emails to communicate the details of this, but starting next week, if you want to bring, you have 9 o'clock and 10 you still need to register. Um, and you can come to either one of those, and if you have preschool kids, you can register your preschool kids to be a part next week. So we're excited for our ministry teams to be taking point on this, to take this next step, and uh, we're praying God's covering over every part of it. Um, Leaders, teachers, that's our main um, challenge, is making sure we've got enough leaders and teachers to do this. Um, This team is ready for next week, and then if you are interested in being a leader, a teacher, whatever, with children and youth for the next phase, you can go ahead and start letting us know that. We'll create that list, and when we're ready, we'll be making that leap as well. So again, when is is two services happening? Next Sunday. Sunday. So um, I look forward to seeing you guys here at 9 and 1030. My job, now I have to work two hours a week. (laughs) Golly. All right. Okay, more details on that. All right, so let me catch you up with the passage. I want to make sure everybody's good on that, that we're, we're, we're all clear. Um, it's exciting, and this is a, it's a weird time. To, they did not have a class on this in seminary. I'll just tell you, they did not. The pandemic class, I, or I missed it, one of the two. You'd think as many as we've had, but the, um, uh, we would do this. But So here we are. We're in Daniel, we're in Daniel chapter 6, and the last two weeks, man, again, as, as everyone has said, what a huge blessing to send out a text on Friday and say, um, so who wants to preach Sunday morning? And to have someone like Robert Carter say, I I mean, I can preach Sunday morning, right? He's only been doing it 40 years probably, so like what's the big deal? So he was able to step in and uh, did a great job. And then Stephen Young, we asked him to move his forward. He was already scheduled to speak. Could you move forward? Sure, he moves forward a week, no problem. Um, It's just amazing to have godly men being able to step up and teach and lead like they did. And that you can have Total, I mean, I'm going to be sitting there watching it on screen with no sense of like, I need a pause button, delete. I mean, none of that. I mean, I have such total confidence in these men. It's such a great gift. So back to Daniel chapter 6. Here we are. If you'll remember, we've gone through this whole life of Daniel. He was a boy. And, and again, when we talk about you're never too young to start standing up for God, you're never too young for that. Daniel is one of our examples Daniel and his friends stood up to pressures we almost can't imagine in order to stand up for what they believed was right, to avoid being defiled by the culture. It's amazing. But shocking to have the same person be who you look to when you say, 
And you're never too old to stand up for the Lord. You're never too old to stand up against the pressures of the culture. You're never too old. The fact that that's the same man is incredible. How rare do we get the stories of people who start well and finish well? It's just so rare. It's, it's a shock to us. And, and, and you can pick, whether you pick politicians, and I mean, yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't often do well at any stage, right? And so morally or whatever. So we have that, but then we have, but when you start looking even at, at Christian leaders to go starting well and finishing well, and we talked about a few weeks ago the, the concept of integrity that allows someone that, that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be what we seem to be. We actually are what we seem to be. Now, we, see, we should seem to be flawed and imperfect and, and failures. So ministers and leaders who present themselves as somehow that they've got it all together and they've got it perfect, they're lying to you. Um, they're somewhere between a con and self-deluded narcissists. I don't know which it is, but when they present themselves that way, they are one of those. None of us have that. But that we are faithful in the, way, in the basic ways that every human can choose to be faithful. That is something that is plausible and is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have a guy like Daniel who sticks it from the time he's a child until the time he is where we're getting him now in Daniel chapter 6, probably in his 80s or 90s. And we've talked through so many lessons of that, and that's where he is. And what's happened is, he's, he is now, we have yet another king, Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede has now put Daniel in charge, one of his top men in charge, and he's about to make him his top man. And the other men around Darius are apparently, it doesn't tell us this, but are apparently jealous of this, and so they want to bring Daniel down. And so here you have these top men, these powerful men in the government under Darius, <clears throat> and, and we talked about who that was. I believe that's, his name is, the, the historical name for him is Gobrias. Um, and I think he is the, 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 excuse me, the military leader who led the taking of the city of Babylon, who helped conquer um, the kings of Babylon. And now he's been brought in, he's been put in power at least over this region, and, and that's who we're dealing with, I believe. And so now we have, uh, they've, they've said, we've got to get rid of Daniel, we can't do it. They literally says, let's see if I can do it. I, I love how the verse, and this is the verse we're memorizing, how this verse breaks down. Um, you know what, I'm going to wait, because I want to make sure and get there. I've got it ready. We're going to get there one second. Let me, let me catch us up where they are. So, then, verse 6, then the high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Reminder, even as we talk so highly about Daniel, and he is deserving of our respect, keep in mind that Daniel, if he were here, would be pointing us and reminding us that he is not the protagonist of the story of Daniel. 
Daniel does not see himself as the protagonist of his story. He sees God as the protagonist of his story. He constantly pushes back to this, constantly pushes back to this. So, here we have Darius is taken in by these officials. How? How is he taken in? Well, first, they lied. If you go back and you look at verse 6, they said, uh, verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom agree. Do all of the high officials of the kingdom agree? Well, no, at least Daniel probably doesn't, right? Literally, the top official in the kingdom, they didn't go to Daniel. This is all about, so one is they just flat lied to him. They said, listen, all of your counselors, all of us are in agreement that this is an excellent idea. Now, this is a good moment for any leader to remember that anytime somebody comes to you and says, hey, everyone's in agreement, first of all, they aren't, right? Anybody ever led humans? Does that ever happen? It does not. Everyone's in agreement. That should have been a cue to Darius. No, they're not. Now, but Darius, remember, Darius is a military leader. He's used to everybody being in agreement. They agree perfectly with what he says. When you're a general, everyone's in agreement because you're the general, and so they're going to do whether they agree or not is irrelevant. They're in agreement, right? Hey, you told them they are, so they are. So this is, he's, he's, again, I think he's taken in by this. I also think they're feeding his pride and, ironically, his insecurity. Isn't it interesting how often those go hand in hand? That our very pride is the root of our insecurities and vice versa. So consider, here you have this man who <coughs> recently promoted from general to local king. Now he's being promoted from local king to God. This is a pretty exciting thing. When you, all of your people come to you and, you say, and they say to you, you know what we think? We think you deserve another promotion. So far you've been promoted to the king of Babylon, the greatest city on the earth. We think you ought to be promoted to God. We think no one should pray to or seek input or should ask for anything from anyone but you from now on. Incidentally, I would say if you can be promoted to God, you at least have a theological problem. If you're capable of the people around you promoting you the position of God, you have some serious issues going on. However, this is the common and even universally effective temptation of our race. It's worked on every single one of us, from Eve to Adam and on through every single one of us, ironically, except the one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Jesus Christ. Every single other one of us has bought this lie. You need to be promoted to God. You need, to have the new, you need to have a role in your life. You need to have the title God in your life. That you're the one who decides morality, and, and you're the one who decides what's right for you, and you're the one who decides how you should do things and how you should express yourself, and, and you should give yourself justification for all the stuff that you do. Like, when, look at the stuff that you do. That's awful, but you know what? You're God, so it's justified. You're allowed to do it because you had a good reason for doing it. By the way, if you haven't run into this, those of you who are married, I'm going to rescue a few of you here real quick. <clears throat> um, we always judge other people based on their behavior, but we judge ourselves based on our motives. If you didn't know this before now, let me help you out. I mean, this this would save you thousands of dollars in fees, okay? So that you, if you didn't know this about yourself, because here's the thing, when you step over your shoes that are laying out in the middle of the floor, you have a good reason for it, right? I mean, you're going to be wearing those in a few minutes. You don't need to pick them up. They're out there for a reason. They're a good reason for the shoes to be there in the middle of the floor, Otherwise, you wouldn't leave them there in the middle of the floor, right? 
you'd pick them up. Now, no one else has any good reason to leave their shoes in the middle of the floor, right? No one else does. They left theirs. Now, they've got a good reason, right? They know what their, theirs are a good reason, but I'm going to play with that, but I'm going to wear that, but I'm going to do something with that. There's a good reason for them, but when you step over, you're like, there is no possible good reason for these shoes to be sitting right here. Come get your shoes, right? Turn out those lights. That's a, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged man. That's what I do now. I walk around turning out lights and complaining about them not being turned on. That's it. <laughs> so, so this is a this is this is what it is for us as humans. We all want to be God, and we all take that stance. Understand that the salvation experience is in many ways, even though most of us did not understand it this way at the time, we've learned it the hard way afterwards, is in many ways a violent act. When Jesus saves us, one of the things he's saving us from is our current king. The tyrannical God-King who sits on the throne of our life, delusionally, because He doesn't. He sits, you know, He, he actually sits like in the little passenger seat in the little chair that has a little eh, eh, eh horn, you know, that one, remember that you had as a little kid? We think we're God sitting in that seat. We think we're sitting in that throne, that's who we are. But, but the truth is, one of the things that Jesus saved us from is that King, that tyrant God who goes by the name you. And so when we become a believer, what we're doing is, whether we realize it or not, is there has been a violent overthrow of a kingdom. The kingdom of me has now been thrown down and crushed under heel, and a new king is taking the position of God and king in my life. That's why an ambassador, I'm an ambassador for Jesus, not an ambassador for me. That's why I, try to, I want to grow His kingdom, not mine. And that that's begins to change. Gobrius has no concept of this, and he's had a group of people come around. The difference between Gobrius and us is that it happens in black and white in a way we can mock him about it, versus just inside of our own souls and our own hearts where we feel justified in it. So that's, Gobrius gets to be, we get to look at him and go, how did you fall for this? But that's just because we don't know ourselves well enough to realize we're falling for this every time we choose something other than God's way. No, no, I'm, I'm God. No, no, I'm king. I'm, I'm in charge of this. So it's a, he's one of those great people in the Bible who the difference is the, the quiet part gets spoken out loud here. For most of us, this stays quiet. Our spouses know it. They know we think we're God. Our children know it. They know we think, and we certainly, our parents know it. They know that we think we're God. But very few people get close enough to us to see how ugly a tyrannical God king we are in our own life. And we consistently try to come back and rebel, and it, and it works on us. Um, so here you have this old soldier, not interested in drama, but he does want to establish himself as a political leader. Now, this is a mistake that's going to cost these officials. Just, I, I, I was talking with some of the, guy, with the guys, we were talking about the podcast about this. I, I don't know how these officials thought this was going to go. The, the level of delusion that must be required. Old soldiers aren't good choices to take advantage of. This is not a good choice. Just if they should have watched the Rambo movies, they would have known. You don't, you don't cross old soldiers. Like that's, anyway, maybe they just didn't know because they were just career politicians. They didn't understand how this worked. We'll get more of that. <coughs> Years ago, Carl Jung and the psychologist said that there are four archetypes for masculinity. That when, for those of us who are males, that when we're looking for a picture of what it means to be a male, we look to either the lover, the wizard, 
the warrior, or the king. And as men, we build our identity uh, uh, on ourselves too often, based at least on one of these. That we have to look, I, have to, I think of myself as a man because of my ability to influence the emotions of others, the lover. My ability to know things. I'm a man because of what I know. That's the wizard or the rabbi, the professor. Or I'm a, I'm a man because of my physical prowess. That's the warrior. Or I'm a man because of my ability to lead others, the king. Those are the four main archetypes. And what we're looking at is we're looking at this great picture of a man who has spent his life as a warrior, and now he's being invited to be a king, and now he's being told he's a god, and they, he, he buys it. It's, it's a sad picture of someone who's established himself as everyone's savior. That sounds, that sounds nice, doesn't it? If we were psychologically honest with ourselves, we would admit that we're all a little bit offended that there are people in the world who are doing well and they don't even know us. They should be kind of struggling, shouldn't they? I mean, really, think how much better their life could be if they knew us, right? Every time we see someone struggling on the news, we go like, oh, well, I could talk with them about that. Like, I wish I could. They should come see me. I should be able to help them with that. And that is all of us. We all want to be everyone's Savior, even ourselves. I learned this very painfully. You can imagine how, what a weird thing this is to learn at an older age. Um, so in my 20s, um, I was a co-student minister with a guy named uh, Scott Sullivan, and Scott was a gifted encourager <clears throat> and a great leader. And, and so he would, I was in charge of Wednesday night stuff, and he was in charge of Sunday night stuff, and every Sunday night he would end with this Q&A time with the kids, and they would ask, and he would ask this evaluation, like, what did you think about tonight, and what did you learn, which was really cool. For a long time, <coughs> I made sure that, that I was going to be the person to wrap up what all the students said, because obviously they needed me to, to kind of put a bow on that and to wrap that up for them so they would know what it was God wanted them to learn from tonight, and I was going to tell them what it was that, that God wanted them to learn from. I wasn't in charge of Sunday night, Scott was, but he kind of needed me to kind of rescue it at the end there uh, every Sunday night. If he was listening, he would probably be laughing. He's a missionary in France right now, so uh, it'll at least probably be a few hours. The, um, uh, and so it was, it was probably quite an irritant to him, but he was a patient enough person that he didn't make an issue of it. And then one night I decided, like, you know what, maybe I should just stay quiet and see if God can do this without me. And it was incredible. It was so much better than what I would have done or what I would have said. And so I started this little thesis. I know this sounds ridiculous that here I am in my 20s, and, but I'm, I'm, I'm being very serious with how I handled this. So I ran an, an experiment over the next few weeks by not speaking at the end and just seeing if really things could wrap themselves up without me, if God really had that. And week after week, it was fantastic. And, and then what started happening after about three or four weeks is I realized I kind of needed to listen to that. Wait, I, I should be learning from this, not just waiting to see whether I speak or not. And so I, it took several weeks for me to catch on to the fact that God doesn't need my help. And some of you haven't learned that yet. Um, some of you, hopefully you're learning that. Here's what's wild. We don't, God doesn't need our help. He, in fact, it's, what's amazing is that He allows us to be involved in what He's doing, even though we're probably underfoot more than anything else that we're like the four-year-old who's the big helper, right? That's probably more what we seem like to God. And yet, just like with the four-year-old who we allow to be the big helper, God wants to grow us. And so He lets us help. If He wants it done right, He has to do it Himself. 
So we end up with these weird midlife crises because we worship a fallen God, us. And when this God fails us, and you will, we fall apart. Our whole religion, we've peaked in our life. We've reached this high point, and it's only going to, and, and our legacy isn't what we want it to be. The legacy of what? The legacy of Chris isn't what he wants it to be, therefore I have a midlife crisis because my religion has failed. Because I cannot, I cannot build for myself a large enough temple or a big enough gold statue to make my life seem worthwhile. It depresses us to think that probably our great-grandchildren will not know our names. And we go, well, we're probably, none of us in the room are going to be on a dollar bill. No humans maybe at some point, right? We're going to tear down everything at some point because humans are, are so flawed and failed that the truth is we're, we're not all that worthy of honor most of the time. And so when our statue, when it turns out no one's going to remember us, that someday somebody's going to hit, read your name and not know why your name is attached to something or if it should be, like, this is so tough for us, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm camping so long on this. I just feel like when it comes to the truly, fully saturated Christian life, this is part of what's needed, is for us to recognize we, uh, Pastor Stephen last week talked about people walking their whole lives without getting anywhere. <clears throat> if you serve the kingdom of self, you don't. The songs we sung this morning, what is our hope built upon? To the degree our hope is built on the government or our 401k or our reputation or ourselves, it's going to fall. It's sinking sand. Everything that's built on something other than Christ will sink into the dirt. As, a, as a, one of the advantages of being a therapist is I get to watch Ecclesiastes lived out time after time after time in front of me. As people have built their whole lives on something, I'm going to search for this, and I'm going to build my life on this, and I'm going to make my life meaningful with this, and I'm going to, and then they're in the therapist's office because their God has fallen. And it's fallen apart on them, and now they're in the therapist's office going, what do I do? Like, well, you're going to have to start a whole new religion. You're going to have to pick a new one. Start over again with something that's not going to fail you, that's not going to sink like this. So how about Daniel. What is this man, Daniel, who goes from childhood into his 90s to the point of death without his God falling because his God wasn't Daniel? Which is amazing. By the way, isn't it shocking that the consequence of Daniel not being the protagonist in Daniel's life is that not only does Daniel's God, Yahweh, not fall, but Daniel doesn't fall. If Daniel had built his life on Daniel, Daniel would have fallen just like David did. Because at some point, David built his, his identity on David, and of course, you can't support the weight of your own identity. That sounds ridiculous, but it's true. You cannot support the weight of your own identity. You need a God bigger than yourself to do this. And so that's where we are. So what does Daniel do? Here we now have this law put in place. No one can seek out any God. No one can seek out anyone. No one can go to anyone and say, hey, could you do this? Could you do this for me? Except Gobrias. Darius, the Mede, and what is Daniel's response to this new law? We've talked about this. We talked about this way back when Daniel, Daniel, he is more than happy to follow the law when the law does not require him to disobey his God. That's that we always follow the highest authority. I don't have time to talk about that again today. You can go back and listen to those sermons early on in Daniel. 
Don't, I don't, we, we always follow the highest authority. That is our calling as Christians. We follow the highest authority. If, the, if God's law and man's law coincide, then of course we follow that because man's law is a high authority in our life, and so we can follow that. There's nothing wrong with that until it causes us to defy God, and then we don't. And so Daniel's done exactly what he's supposed to do, and now for the first time in a long time, there's a new law, and this law defies God's instruction as Daniel understands it. So in verse 10, we get one of the most amazing passages. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. So one about to be clear, the writer, Daniel, does not want you to misunderstand this. This was not an ignorance. Daniel knew this law was in place. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Wow. When, when we wonder, how do we handle this? We have this example of Daniel that is so amazing. The two-part strategy that we talked about a few weeks ago, <clears throat> how do we live in a culture that isn't friendly to our following God? One is that we follow God and faithfully follow God to such a degree that someone would say, we can find nothing wrong with them outside of their relationship with God, but we can find something wrong with them in regards to their relationship to God. So that's how we're working to memorize that verse, which has a really great rhythm. As I start trying to memorize it, um, I like the, the kind of rhythm of it. <clears throat> then these men said, let's see if I can get the rhythm right, we shall, f- we shall not we shall not find any ground for complaint against this man, complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It's, it's a great little to remind ourselves as we're memorizing this, this is it. So let's, again, let's say it together. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's what we want to be true of us as we face the same circumstances, that one, they couldn't find complaint against us otherwise, and they can find complaint against us if it's in regards to the law of our God. They are 100% sure what Daniel's going to do. This is the fully saturated, integrated life of God followers. The half-hearted Christian life is ending. I suspect, we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks, the prayerless Christian life is also ending in America. And that scares me because that's not one of the spiritual disciplines I'm best at. But the life that is built on our own behavior, on our own actions, as, as our actions get restricted, what we're allowed to do gets restricted. The one thing we cannot have restricted from us is our ability to pray. I was I always thought, I remember, I, so I was a student when it became, quote, illegal to pray in school. And I remember at the time being like, how are you going to stop me from praying in school? Like, (laughs) how do you know if I'm praying in school? Like, you would have, watch, I'll do it now. (laughs) You can't stop me. Like, I can pray all I want. Teachers can pray all they want. Like, you can't stop people from praying in school. So this whole whole concept of going, of course I can pray. You could be standing in front of a, a judge 
praying. If you're standing in front of a judge because of your faith, I hope you are praying. This is a like this is how this this is how this is supposed to work. So memorizing God's word and holding on to it and having it in our heads, that's not something that can be taken from us like that. This is the ultimate expression of integrity. He heard about it, an immoral, but but notice, legal law. Gobrius has the authority by his government to make this law. That's, that's hammered over and over again. This is done according to the law of the Medes and Persians. It is legal. Legal does not mean moral. As Christians, we know that. They aren't the same thing. You can certainly have immoral laws. But it would require Daniel to disobey the way he believed he needed to worship God. Listen to what Psalm, probably Psalm 55 is what Daniel is, is living according to. Psalm 55, 16 and 17, but I call to God and the Lord will save me evening and morning and noon. I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. This, this psalm is a big part of why in the Jewish world you do typically see people pray three times a day minimum. Is, is these because it's what David models for us in this passage. And also in Psalm 5, 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. So again, Daniel knows his psalms backwards and forwards. He probably had them all memorized. And so Daniel knows he's going to pray three times a day and he's going to face Jerusalem when he does it. He's a long way from Jerusalem. Maybe this is how the Persian, the, the Persian prophets uh, and scholars knew where to go when it came time to go look for ba- the newborn baby Jesus is because Daniel's house, they could just see, you know, 600 years later, if Daniel's house was still, wherever his window's pointed, that's the direction we need to go, right? Daniel had taught them to look this direction when they pray. So here he is, he's done it that way every day, I assume, for decades of his life. It was the habit of prayer towards the temple while in exile for the Jews, three times a day. And number two, uh, notice this, I love the sense of not needing to talk to God about this decision. Isn't that interesting? So this guy prays about when everything is difficult. He prays about every little thing. He has his friends gather together and pray together. And yet in this situation, it's kind of one of those jokingly when people ask you something that you know you're not going to do, but you sarcastically say, I'll tell you, okay, I'll pray about that. I don't know if anybody does that. Maybe it's just a pastor thing. So does he, does he hide? Does he change anything about what he's doing? No. Does he at least close the window? No. Does he hang a drape? He, he makes no change. That seems important to me. There's no, there's no message here for Daniel. Daniel doesn't need to parade the fact. He doesn't hang a big banner out. He doesn't change his Facebook profile. He does exactly what he did the day before. He doesn't need to make a, an issue of this. He doesn't feel the need to do any of these things. He just quietly goes about doing exactly what he had did, obeying the, the God he serves on one day. Then an immoral, ungodly law is passed, and he does exactly the same thing the next day. He doesn't post about it. He doesn't throw a parade about it. He just obeys God as he understands it. And that's what he does. Is this Daniel giving Darius a message? Is that what Daniel's doing here? Is Daniel giving Gobrias 
Darius the Mede? Is he giving him some message? Is this him kind of, you know, giving him the salute, so to speak? Is that what he's doing here? No. This has nothing to do with Darius in Daniel's mind. Daniel is obeying God today during the night. Darius, a man who he clearly respects and serves well, the next day he obeys God. Darius's input on it is not apparently very interesting to Daniel when it comes to obedience. He goes about the same thing he did before. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and fanned Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And I think this is, I mean, and Daniel probably saw them, right? I mean, there's no, there's no sneakiness about this. They don't have to like, oh, let's hide in the bushes and wait and see if Daniel prays. They know exactly when he's going to pray. He's going to pray at exactly the same time he did yesterday. They, I, I love the idea of them going, well, let's be there, let's be there at exactly 6 a.m. Why? Well, because that's when Daniel will pray is at 6. So they all show up and praying. See, yep, we knew it. Nailed it. We knew that we could find him. We could find a complaint against him in regards to the law of his God. We knew we could find that, and we did. There's no sneaking around. He's so predictable. Now, this is, this is guys, this is where my faith um, got a little bit of a kick in the pants this week. Is there anything in my relationship with God that is this steadfast? Is there anything that's this steadfast, this predictable? I don't know. How long would the FBI have to wait to catch me worshiping? I don't know. That became, a, that became something for me to wrestle with big time. Is there anything steadfast like this? Matthew 6, <clears throat> 1, you're probably thinking, you may be thinking if, you're, uh, if you've been to church your whole life, but aren't we supposed to do this type of stuff in secret? Right? I mean, it says in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So do you have a little bit of that in your head? Like, but Daniel's up here on the top of his building with a, a window open towards Jerusalem. Everybody knows he prays at this time. Isn't he breaching this concept of being in secret? But the problem is we, we, we get the wrong emphasis here in this passage. Just the chapter before, Matthew 5 14 through 16, Jesus said the very same sermon. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So is the... Is the is the point Jesus is making here is that everything should be done in secret where no one could see it? Or is he saying everything should be done publicly where people can see it? The difference between these two passages is the motivation, not the behavior. Are you seeking to bring attention to you? Or are you seeking to bring attention to your Father? If you're bringing attention to the Father, of course it's okay. That makes you a light to the world for people to see that God is faithful. And that's what Daniel is doing here. He makes no changes. He declares no challenges. He throws no parades. He made no fanfare. He was not drawing attention to himself. He just shone on this day the way he had every other day. As you watch us, as you watch other Christians around us lead, as we watch Christian leaders lead, are they inspiring us to look to God or are they inspiring us to look to them? 
Is the standard seeking to meekly follow the Savior or to follow their own personal application of what's going on? I think this example of Daniel's is truly solid gold to us. The more I study this man, I mean, he just is, he is a, just an amazing person. They could find nothing in anything he had done the day before. And yet now, after 60 years, although I'm sure imperfectly, I'm sure Daniel missed some days. He is Daniel, not Jesus. I'm sure he missed some stuff. And they go see, and then they run this is this as, as kind of pathetic an example ever. You see these men going, oh, I'm, I'm telling. Oh, I'm going to tell King Darius. This does not go well for them. So, lessons, lessons from this today as we jump in, as we continue to, to, to dive through these passages and these concepts. I think it is vitally important that we look at our lives. I know I am. And seeing what parts of my lives are not integrated with Christ, are not saturated with Christ, where are those? And I don't mean everything has to be a religious exercise. Don't, don't misunderstand that. I, I do believe in the way C.S. Lewis and others have taught throughout the years that, that when we practice the good things that God has given us, we are, we are enjoying God in that. The provision of nature and one another and entertainment and enjoyment, these things aren't evil and they can be things that we really enjoy with God. But to ask ourselves, where in our lives, what in our lives have we failed to submit to Him? What in our lives that if we were challenged on it, here, here's what's wild, if, if, that if, the, if the, they came along and said, hey, as a part of your Christian faith, you're no longer allowed to do this, if my answer would be, well, I probably shouldn't have been doing that anyway, well, then maybe I shouldn't be doing that anyway. Maybe there are things in my Christian walk that I need to transfer some time, I need to move some stuff from one area to another. Can, can I get, can I be convicted of being a faithful follower of Jesus? Could someone in a very short amount of time find a complaint against me because of the law of my God? I think that's a, a worthwhile thing for us to be really engaged with as we're wrestling through this. And, ladies and gentlemen, we must be teaching that to one another and to the next generation of believers we have to teach that concept to them. Because for us, for many of us, this may be more theoretical than it is practical when it comes to facing down our culture. But I'm suspicious that it will not be theoretical at all or academic for the next generations. So for us to be teaching this, if you're not spending the time to teach it to your children and grandchildren and other people's children and grandchildren, we, we need you to. We need to step up in regards to this, to be teaching this understanding. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, because we're flawed, but intentionally. And I want to pray this over us as a church as we move forward um, in living this out. We're so grateful for the example of Daniel. Um, once again, God's Word speaks so loudly to us. Father, we're so grateful for the power of Your Word in our lives, for the practical nature of it even. But right now, we aren't experiencing that, though the church in China and around the world, other places, are facing exactly this. They are being punished for being faithful. They're being persecuted because they have been found, complaint has been found against them because of your law. And I pray your comfort on those believers, and I pray that, that we will live faithfully in honor of them and out of obedience to you. 
Thank you that we have the example of a man like Daniel, who with no fanfare just obeys you. And I pray the simple act of obedience is exactly what will be lived out in our lives too. We'll learn to live this out in this way so that as it becomes more complicated, we'll be able to stand firm. And having done everything, we'll be able to stand. So, Father, we're grateful to you for the power of your word and the power of your spirit at work in us. Thank you for those who help lead us week after week. Thank you for this church. I pray that you will expand its role in your kingdom as we seek to live out being ambassadors of your kingdom, not ours, yours. Do so in your Son's name and through the sanctifying work of your Spirit, according to your perfect knowledge and will. Amen.